Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are failing and how to fix them. Like I think almost everybody, we've all been gripped by the protests of the past few weeks and the remarkable shifts in public opinion in support of Black Lives Matter. And and in many ways, it feels like something really is different this time. Uh, But beyond the obvious questions of systemic racism and police brutality, I think there's a bigger set of questions that we as political scientists often think about, uh, particularly around democratic responsiveness and sort of the, the, the thin line, I don't know what color, whether it's blue or gray or whatever, between uh, sort of normal politics and extraordinary politics. So today, I think we're going to try to answer these questions. Uh, I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I am Julia Azari. I am an Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University and a blogger at mischiefsoffaction.com. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. And I also have the pleasure today to introduce our special guest, Omar Wasso. He's an assistant professor of politics at Princeton University. He's the co-founder of BlackPlanet.com. And he's the author of a fabulous new article in the American Political Science Review titled Agenda Seating. How 1960s Black Protest Moved Elites, Public Opinion, and Voting. And it is a fabulous article. I strongly encourage and recommend all of our listeners to to read it. We'll have it in the show notes as well. And I just want to say welcome, Omar, and thanks for joining us. So, I mean, I think think the big question everybody wants to know is is how did you get such a well-timed article? Uh, But (laughs) I think the... the, uh, the bigger question that we'll debate is uh, and discuss, uh, I want to sort of, you know, start with a, a big question and then we can kind of break down and talk about your research. But we often like to have a big kind of question to just kind of get a sense of where we all are. And, and one of the themes of this podcast is talking about the, the role of institutional reform. And I think protests encourage us to think in, in other ways at questions of, of access and representation. And you know, I think one thing that we've been struggling with in this podcast, and I think broadly in our political discourse, is how, how do we have the right and productive conversation about the intersection between normal and extraordinary politics? And is, is that even the right distinction? Or just how should we be thinking about, about this? And Omar, do you want to kind of just get us started and, and you know, kind of offer some initial thoughts here? Sure. Um, well, again, thank you for having me on. And I think this distinction between sort of normal and extraordinary politics is, is a really helpful one. And what we saw in the 1960s, which just to be clear, my research focuses primarily on the 1960s and uh, right through uh, the 72 election. Um, what we saw are a couple of ways in which normal politics failed. And so the, the kind of the, the first most obvious way in which normal politics failed was that in the Jim Crow South, there was, you know, a, a, a two-tier system of uh, a democracy where African-Americans were second-class citizens. And so there just, there was no normal path to uh, have your issues addressed through things like voting, right? If you're disenfranchised, then clearly that's not working. But there's a second way in which normal politics failed for African-Americans in the South. And this was one of the things that, that, that was striking to me is we have a we kind of put nonviolence on a pedestal um, as this very effective means of uh, getting your, your, your voice heard. But there was in, uh, there's a history of uh, the civil rights uh, 
media, the, the press, the, the reporters who covered it, and uh, called the Press Beat, won the Pulitzer Prize. And, and there are a number of interesting details in it that speak to how a normal nonviolent protest actually um, wasn't, it still was not yet extraordinary enough. So, so shifting from kind of voting to protest or being excluded from voting to protest is one shift away from normal politics. But as one reporter at the New York Times put it, an unprecedented protest in Hattiesburg, Mississippi was dull. Uh, what, you know, blood and guts make the news, right? And, and so what, what became clear was that while it was possible to influence media and public opinion through protest and nonviolent protest, what really made, uh, you know, it really allowed the media to take this seriously, the rest of the country to pay attention to it was when nonviolent protesters were the object of state violence. And that became an explicit strategy of the nonviolent civil disobedience movement was to be nonviolent protesters in protesters that were often in protests that were often quite violent because the state was engaging in violence. And so the basically the, the outside of the South, if you had a protest that was peaceful, that looked like normal politics, that looked like the system was working. Um, and it was only when there was this extraordinary conflict and repression that the rest of white America uh, said, oh wait, no, that, that, that maybe is something um, that, that, that we need to you know, prioritize. Julia? Yeah, so this is, yeah, the, this historical perspective is um, is incredibly valuable, and I want to touch briefly on three ideas that have come to mind as I've thought about this this normal versus extraordinary politics that put this in, I guess, in the the broader context beyond um, some more immediate questions of protest. That's not really my area of expertise, and that's why we've <laughs> why we've recruited Omar to educate us on that topic. Um, but one thing that I've really hammered home a lot in various work and that we've talked about on the podcast is this idea that normal is not necessarily good. And there's a kind of way, I think, of valorizing, particularly maybe like this same era, right? This mid, mid 20th century politics, like the people who, people who remember that era and also people who, who were born after it, I think have bought into a somewhat romantic vision of of the bipartisanship of how the system worked of the of the nature of the 1960s protests as peaceful and I think one of the things to keep in mind is as we think about the functioning of American democracy is that a lot of the ways in which our formal institutions and our kind of expectation of normal our expectation of order we're hearing a lot about order right um are you know, are we're we're very bad for a lot of people, and that's the starting point. I'm, I also want to, I also want to talk about my own work because I'm an academic, and <laughs> that's what I do. Um, but I've, you know, I've written a a lot on the crisis of legitimacy in American politics, and one of the arguments I make in my 2014 book on presidential mandate claiming. So, in some ways a book that is a little bit about the intersection of ordinary and extraordinary politics, where we have the, the most ordinary thing, a presidential election. And then we have this notion of, well, are some elections special? And what I find is that in more recent years, the discourse around elections has become really focused on what they were about and were they a mandate, regardless of whether the election itself seemed to have any special, you know, special qualities or, 
have any unique dynamics. And my argument is that is actually because we were in this perpetual crisis of legitimacy in the post, uh, really post-1968 world, um, the post-Vietnam and post-Watergate world. And so we, our discourse about normal features of democracy has been driven by this sense that our institutions lack legitimacy and they have to rely on um, on mandates on you know on this notion of electoral legitimacy to to boost themselves. And I was thinking about this. I just finished some work on populism and I was reading Margaret Canavan's work on populism. And one of the things that she says is that populism is about extraordinary politics. And it occurred to me that now populism has become this sort of perpetual feature of our of our political system as well. And so we are, I think, in a moment where the ordinary and the extraordinary in mainstream election kinds of discourse have started to be to be merged. And what I'm interested in is how social movements and protests fit into that. Thanks, Julia. I, I... I think those those questions of legitimacy are really important, and I've been kind of thinking a lot about the question of what makes a system legitimate. I've been thinking about sort of self-governance as as kind of a, a complex system that, in order to sustain itself, has to be able to fix itself. And, you know, I think we have this idea that somehow normal politics is sort of this, you know, we have elections, and then elections have consequences, and then... You know, lawmakers debate and produce legislation and then we hold them accountable. But I'm not sure that that ever has really worked in the way that the folk theory would sort of say it does. And maybe that normal politics is actually about groups that aren't represented in that sort of, you know, elections, you know, governance elections cycle actually make their voices heard. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the challenges in thinking about, you know, normal politics is, you know, is it normal for for groups in society not to have their uh, concerns taken seriously by the system? Uh, you know, I mean, if, if, if self-governance is a system in which all uh, concerns are heard and all citizens are treated as equally legitimate, why why do we assume that normal is a system in which a lot of concerns are not heard? I mean, I, I think protests are an incredibly central uh, piece of self-governance because they provide a way for uh, forces and interests and people who might not be represented in the sort of quote-unquote normal channels of power to actually have a voice and to participate in the process. So I, 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 I almost want to flip the script on what we think about as normal and extraordinary, perhaps extraordinary, is a, a system in which a, a small number of people can rule peacefully without having outside demands from folks who who are not included in that conversation. Yeah, and I think that's. Uh, I think those are all great observations. And before handing it over to Omar here, I just want to briefly step back and and kind of let you know how I at least approach this topic and think about it. And that's that, you know, civil disobedience, protests, nonviolent, violent protests, whatever term we want to use. I, I think it's important to, th- to think about when they occur. And, and they occur when a large number of people who have something in common think that the government or the normal, you know, channels uh, that people use to change things are no longer working and will not work to address their grievances. 
And that's where I really want to kind of be the skunk at the garden party here a bit in terms of how we're framing conflict, because I, I think conflicts, I think Omar's uh, thesis is correct and conflict makes news. And the question is, is it, are you, is it violent or is it nonviolent? But, but conflict's not, I don't see it as a continuum, right? It's not like we have a little bit of political conflict and eventually it becomes violent conflict. Rather, there are two different ways to resolve disagreements in society. I think that's how Martin Luther King saw it. And that's how a lot of Americans see it, rightly or, or wrongly. And I think that when we get into a continuum, I think that does explain, though, a lot of the 1960s, because in the 60s, a lot of conservative law and order minded Americans cast the violent conflict of the late 60s as the logical extension of the of this of the nonviolent conflict of the early 60s. And I and I, I don't think that necessarily I think they're related, certainly. But it's not like if you just have a lot of political conflict, eventually you just spill over into into violence. And what I'm really intrigued about is the primacy of violence at the time. And you can think about the civil rights movement, you can think about the anti-war movement, but the immediacy and the destructive potential of violence and the problems that people are grappling with, I, at the time at least, led people to, to embrace politics. Even into the 70s, conservatives, progressives, all kinds of people, were, they saw common action and political conflict and politics as the way to change the world. And that violence really pushed people, the immediacy of it pushed people into the political realm and pushed them into trying to figure out how to come together, use their numbers to create power, not force and violence, to change things. And I think what's interesting is that what makes extraordinarily extraordinary politics possible, moments possible, is when government breaks down, going back to my original point. And I, you know, I want to channel Marx here where he talks about violence as a secondary effect in history. And it's, it's, he, he compared it to the birth pains that, that accompany, but don't cause birth. And, and I, I, I fundamentally do not think that violence can ever create a new political and in a moment of extraordinary politics. It, it, it's not the thing that's going to do it. I think that it's ultimately nonviolence and more political conflict that will ultimately do it. But that's just my own kind of scattershot of different thoughts here. And I'm very anxious to hear what, what Omar has to say. Let me echo one core point of what you just said, which I think is, is spot on, which is we can think about kind of two means of persuasion, right? Or two means of power, really, right? So one is a coercive power, which uh, tends to you know, flow from the barrel of a gun, um, or we can think about a kind of persuasive power, which is much more the speech assembly, um, you know, freedom of the press model of, of power. And, and I think in, there are enough examples of a coup succeeding of you know, the founding of the United States in a revolutionary war that, that I, I, I can't sort of say violence is not a, 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 an effective means to power in many contexts. Um, the cross-national analysis by Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stephen uh, looking at nonviolent and violent campaigns does underscore your point, uh, which is that nonviolent work sorry, nonviolent political movements succeed about twice as often as violent political movements or that rely on violent tactics. And it's, uh, and, and just to put some hard numbers there, it's about 25% of the campaigns they looked at are over 300 campaigns cross nationally. Um, 
about 25% of the campaigns that employed violence were successful, and about, I think it was 53% of the campaigns that employed nonviolent tactics uh, were successful. And there are a couple of core things that they find in their cross-national um, in their cross-national uh, approach that uh, uh, are echoed in what we see in the United States. So, for example, um, you know, it's easier to have legitimacy in the international community when you're employing nonviolent tactics. That that it's easier for other kinds of groups, countries, uh, and you know, non-government organizations to support you. Um, but that's also true domestically. There are um, organizations, you know, domestically that may be allies, there may be, you know, whether it's unions or um, other political parties. And, and what's striking in their work is they find even that uh, nonviolence and the legitimacy that comes from nonviolence can be a powerful way of co-opting the opposition, that you may even pull people from the opposing coalition into your group. Um, so that's one cluster of it. Another kind of thing that they find is that when your campaign escalates to violence, it then legitimizes the state's in use of violence. And so, you know, one of the things that I, I touch on is there's a, there's a line that I love that got cut from the paper about how, you know, if you're 10% of the population, which African-Americans were in, 19, in the 1960s, you are by definition outnumbered and outgunned by the you know, national government by a 90% white majority in the country. And so violent tactics, you, you sort of have to assume you're engaging in kind of an asymmetric form of conflict. And, um, and, and, and so coercive, uh, more militant methods are, have, have, have really long odds against, you know, a military as vast and a police force as vast as the United States. Whereas nonviolence and the kind of moral authority that comes from that, the legitimacy that comes from that, particularly when there is a, a, a media, in the absence of a vibrant media, I'm not so sure these tactics would have worked as well. In the absence of the rise of television, I'm not so sure these tactics would have worked as well. But, but, but the combination of a free enough society you know, not fully democratic, right? African-Americans are disenfranchised in the South. Segregation is the rule of the land in, in, in much of the country, but, but there is a free press. And with that free press, African-American civil rights leaders are able to engage in this kind of asymmetric power maneuver that reveals, uh, you know, in the language of uh, uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Representative John Lewis, they, they, they thought about it as dramatizing injustice. And in dramatizing injustice, they would reveal the brutality of Jim Crow and, uh, again, in the language of that era, shock the conscience of the nation and, and force change. And whether it was the March on Washington, uh, what the New York Times called the, the greatest redress of grievances in the history of the country, um, or Selma, well, the Bloody Sunday March uh, that, that, by coincidence, um, occurred as a national broadcast of a documentary about war crimes in, in Nazi Germany was playing, right? They cut into this uh, uh, documentary about war crimes to show segregationist vigilantes and police brutalizing uh, African-American peaceful protesters, again, shocking the conscience of the nation. Both the March on Washington and Bloody Sunday precede big spikes in concern about civil rights and public opinion. And within a year, in both cases, landmark civil rights legislation passes. And so, so we see in that model the power of the, the persuasive approach rather than the coercive approach. Um, but I think my one, you know, I, I, the paper does not 
say violence is either illegitimate or necessarily unsuccessful uh, in all cases. It's just that it, it may be less strategic in certain moments, particularly when you're a statistical minority. And, and let me just say one last quick thing, which is, of course, while kind of in our history of um, sort of nonviolent civil disobedience, the civil rights movement is, is iconic, there are other movements like ACT UP, like uh, the ADAPT disability rights movement um, and others, uh, even before the civil rights movement, um, suffragists, where we see the power of persuasion, the power of nonviolent appeals to, uh, uh, to build a winning governing coalition um, can work. And, and you know, in, in, in the case of this people with disability, in the case of people with HIV, these were groups that were deeply stigmatized at the margins of society, like African Americans, and yet were able to build effective, uh, you know, a, a power through nonviolent civil disobedience. So, so I think um, one of the things I hope to do in the future is to in, in, engage with some of these other cases, because I think those are ones where people sort of forget that, oh, yeah, there are lots of campaigns that work without any escalation to violence. And so we shouldn't assume, as you noted, that that's a natural, uh, you know, kind of part of the process. Yeah, let me just uh, real quick underscore this this distinction that I was also trying to make because I, I agree with with all of that. But as I see it, power stems from the people. It comes from numbers, not force, right? So therefore, violence to have true political power needs numbers and people. And so when violence is used to achieve change, the new normal must be supported ultimately in the last analysis by people, right? That is where what gives it power. Even Mussolini needs people. Hitler needs people. The most effective and least effective tyrants, all tyrants need the people. Without the people, they are no longer in power. And so tyranny, and this is, you know, tyranny, Montesquieu tells us, is the least powerful form of government precisely because of its inability to, to rest on a strong bedrock of legitimacy, because the people don't have a lot of reason to support it in extraordinary moments. And so that's kind of, yes, I think violence does ultimately, it can be effective in creating new realities. But the durability and the legitimacy of those realities ultimately depends on political persuasion and power through the people. Great. Um, I want to get a little bit more into to Omar's uh, fascinating paper. Um, and yeah, I, I want to start by, uh, and maybe this is an oversimplification, but that we, as we sort of have this often folk theory of democracy and elections you know, that, that you know, parties compete on issues, you know, they try to offer issues and build coalitions that will get them a winning majority. And, you know, that's democratic responsiveness. They can be held accountable in future elections. And, you know, obviously that doesn't always respond to uh, concerns of, of everybody. And I think implicit in, in your paper, and I hope you can talk us through this theory a little bit, is the idea of a, a kind of different means of democratic accountability, which is really about attention and agenda setting, and it flows through the media. And so you know, we often think about elections as, you know, the, these referendum on parties, but it seems like a, a, another way of thinking about democracy is in terms of, of how, how our attention is allocated and how the media frames the choices for us that maybe don't have as much to do with with the politicians themselves, but have more to do with activists and media. And I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on that and or maybe push back if I'm oversimplifying in unhelpful ways. 
that's exactly right. I mean, this was this when, when I started this research, I was not particularly focused on the media at all. Um, and even as recently as a few years ago, the paper didn't emphasize the media so much because I was just sort of, I mean, there's a core puzzle, right? How does any protest influence anybody? Almost nobody observes a protest, right? And so, so how does that work? Well, there, you know, there were sections of the paper that said, well, I assume protests influence the media and the media are driving things like public opinion. Um, and reviewers didn't buy it and they said, show us a mechanism. Um, and so then there was this like whole other extension of the paper, which was uh, trying to test, can I show protest influence media? and uh, ended up collecting 275,000 headlines from um, uh, eight different newspapers and testing if there was a protest today, was there a headline about it in some newspapers the next day? Um, and in particular, if there was a nonviolent protest today, did the headline mention civil rights? And if there was a protest that included protester-initiated violence, did the headline mention riots? And, you know, and a few other related terms. And what I found was that, in fact, a protest was highly predictive of coverage. Um, so in a very literal sense, protesters were making the news. Um, and so the idea that the protesters had in mind, uh, you know, that activists, again, like, like John Lewis, of staging a protest, right? You're trying to, you're trying to get your story covered. Um, essentially, Gunnar Myrdal talks about this, right? That it's essentially, it's a kind of public relations, but it's a very political public relations. Um, and that, that, that protesters were very successful at that. And so as the kind of work on the mechanism, how are protests influencing politics began to be developed, the, 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 the kind of larger arc of the paper became um, much more focused on, on, on media. And, and it, it updated my own thinking where I sort of went from <laughs> thinking of media as this kind of nice to have, you know, whatever it is, a fourth estate kind of thing to thinking, oh no, this is actually like so vital to uh, you know, democratic, fun the functioning of a democratic society. And, um, and, and just to draw an analogy, which is a little bit of a stretch, but I think not, not, not too much. There's um, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen uh, had this, you know, kind of famous question of like, why were famines in China so catastrophic, you know, millions of deaths, but in India, the famines uh, were not as deadly. And what, um, what he found was that when there was, you know, a dry spell in India, what would happen is there would be people starting to starve, the media, the, the, the vibrant press would cover that and essentially shame the government into responding, right? And so coming back to your question, Lee, about, uh, you know, a responsiveness, democratic uh, responsiveness, the, the, the kind of the shaming effect of the, the watchdog effect of the media played a really powerful role in making otherwise unresponsive institutions responsive. And I think the analogy to the American South in the 60s is, is that there are these kind of pockets of the country, there are regions in which there is some kind of profound catastrophe playing out, and much of the rest of the country and much of the kind of national government can ignore it if it's not in the news. But if it's in the news, then people feel, that creates a sense of crisis, it creates a sense of urgency and people feel compelled to respond. And what the civil rights leaders understood in that early period of the 1960s is if they could essentially nationalize a regional issue, then they could, they could, they could, they could change essentially the theater of conflict. 
right? And, and changing the theory of conflict, you could get a national civil rights act. You could get a national voting rights act. You could bring allies from outside of the South to come and help do things like register voters, right? My father was involved in Freedom Summer registering voters in Mississippi. Like that kind of mobilization changed the theater of conflict such that local leaders, somebody like Bull Connor, who thinks he's sort of appealing to the local segregationists, doesn't realize that in fact, he's performing on a national stage and in, you know, fire hosing young people um, who are protesting peacefully, he's actually doing great harm to the cause of segregation, uh, you know, by design in the, from the perspective of the, uh, the, 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 the civil rights leaders. Julia, you want to jump in with a question? Yeah, so I want to ask about the media and about the changing context, because I, my initial take on this whole situation when people started drawing 1960s comparisons, I mean, there was a lot of talk and the kind of, you know, the discourse that was skeptical of some of the initial protests now in, in 2020. Um, and some of the stuff that went on in Minnesota and a lot of kind of like, why can't you all be more like the the protests in the 60s to which my response was those protests were very carefully calibrated to you know to a society that people knew was violently racist and so if you're asking for things to be more like the 60s you're sort of um asking for people to perform as if we're still that society and maybe maybe we are um so i'm curious broadly about the about the the comparisons across time but also specifically about the changing nature of the media because what you're describing there this dynamic of nationalizing what had been a regional conflict you know, now the national media has you know, as dan hopkins book has has explained has been instrumental in nationalizing politics already the local media Local news outlets have had a really hard time, um, and there are fewer of them, and they're they're able to do less because of their um, you know their their budgetary situation, and also we have you know a highly fragmented and polarized media that frames things differently, and that so I have one more related question, which is specifically about the the framing of violence. Um, because it seems to me that there, there's a perspective that benefits from eroding the, the distinction between violence toward people and property destruction. And we can see how those things may in practice not be completely distinct, right? Like you set fire to a building and it may be that a person is harmed in that in that situation. But also that, that, that these are really different and that there's been a lot of pushback on the notion that harming property is the same thing as what's at stake in a, a protest movement about black lives. So I'm interested in, in any thoughts you might have about those, those framing dynamics and how things have changed over time. Those are rich questions. And let me try to go through quickly what I heard as three questions. So on the first one about kind of um, what we might think of as kind of fragmented or polarized media, I think it's really important to appreciate that in the 60s, there's there's a different kind of news bubble. Um, that is, there is a segregationist media in the South. That is to say, the, the, the newspapers of the South are overwhelmingly pro-segregation. Um, and the media outside the South, whether local or national, are uh, entirely unconcerned or largely unconcerned with the presence of this uh, you know, American apartheid, right? And so it's the only meat press that's covering black concerns and 
discrimination is the black press. And so part of what the kind of the, 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 the genius in some ways of the early civil rights movement was to force uh, essentially a media that only took the concerns of white people uh, seriously to get them to pay attention to the concerns of black people. And that, so, so there was a kind of, you know, it's a different kind of news bubble, but there was a segregated media even outside of the South uh, in the in the early part of the you know in the late 50s and early 60s and that that in some ways was forced to change by the protest movements um, and but that 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 doesn't mean that there aren't new dynamics now of course of fragmentation more media you know more 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 um, potentially uh, you know partisan media um, and I can we can come back to that in a moment but I want to address one other question you you raised which is thinking about how technology and cell phones have changed the current state of affairs. And there, I think there are both radical differences and actually like remarkable similarities. And if we think about part of what, so this is again, one of the things that really stood out to me was how intentional civil rights leaders in the early 60s were about getting TV coverage, right? So Andrew Young, who was a key advisor of Martin Luther King's had, he was one of the few people in the country who had worked extensively on a TV show in the uh, late 50s and early 60s as part of a national, uh, he was hired into a, a, a kind of national Christian fellowship TV program and was helping to produce a, a TV show. And so he understood the logic of television where you have to be able to like get your soundbite out. And you know, almost nobody in the country understood that at this time, even TV news networks didn't understand how to, what quite what they were doing. And so there was this really in-depth knowledge about how to make good TV, and they were doing things like picking locations for protests because they were proximate to new TV stations, right? The, how do you get coverage? They were organizing protests in the morning so that coverage could be flown to New York at night for a broadcast in the evening, right? So there's just this, and, and all of which is to say video mattered enormously, like getting that news clip mattered. And if we think about kind of what was the spark of this most recent wave of protests, it's the video of George Floyd, right? A um, you know, a single shot by uh, Darnella Frazier, 17-year-old young woman who really sits on with her camera, um, paying attention to his face, right? And that that the 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 the, the kind of callous brutality of the officer, the pathos of Floyd's, uh, you know, seeing the life drain from his face is just, a, has been a really powerful spark. And so I think there's one fundamental thread that links the past and the present, which is that at core, there are still elements of, you know, what moves people to feel empathy, what moves people to feel anger. Um, these are deeply human emotions rooted in stories of good and evil. And in the kind of documentation that Frazier provided to the world, we have this much more visceral uh, kind of connection to somebody. I mean, I think it's visceral even at another level. It's not, he's not being shot. There's a man resting his body weight, uh, an officer, the, you know, a representative of the state resting his body weight on this man's neck, on George Floyd's neck. And that is just, um, I, I, you know, it's it, 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 it's intimate uh, in in a way that something like even like a gun would not be, and so all of which is to say that that there's something powerful about seeing moving images and the way they move us to feel for another person or to be angry on behalf of another person. Um, and then the the third uh, question, <laughs> I got so excited about uh, talking about the power of video. Um, 
I have lost the, what the third part of your question was uh, at the tail end. Well, can we hang on this, this question of media for just one second? And, you know, and, and the images, which are incredibly powerful, but I mean, having, uh, you know, read about the protests both on uh, from, you know, on, from the New York Times, the Washington Post and, and Vox and, you know, seeing the, the things that they emphasize, which are, uh, you know, the, the peaceful elements of the protest, which make people more empathetic towards them, as well as a, a lot of coverage of the 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 uh, police brutality. Uh, whereas, you know, if you go to, you know, New York Post or Fox News, you're seeing a lot of coverage of, of the damage. And so I, one of the key points of your paper is that in places where the protests were, were violent and the media coverage reflected that violence, that there was much more of a, of a backlash against the protests. So how does that play out in, in a moment in which the media is, is national, but Part, parts of the media are emphasizing the violent aspects of the protests, whereas other parts of the media are emphasizing the nonviolent parts of the protests and focusing on much more on the acts of police brutality. And that helpfully reminds me of what Julia's question is, and I can try to speak to both of them, right? Sort of, sort of how do we define violence and what, what does that mean in terms of, of media coverage? Um, and so let me, let me back up for a second and just talk about some very basic kind of framing theory, which uh, may be helpful for listeners, which is that there's sort of uh, a kind of an understanding in kind of communications research that media often rely on pre-existing narratives to tell a story in the news. And uh, that can be thought of as, um, I mean, the way I think about it even is that it's sort of like we have kind of deep-seated kind of cultural mythology that, that even is not entirely consciously uh, getting drawn out into our coverage, right? So two of those narratives are, one is a story about, um, you know, a, a, a claim for rights. And so that's everything from the Boston Tea Party to, um, you know, a, a, a any story about this kind of, again, like the New York Times saying the March on Washington was a, the greatest redress of grievances, right? That, 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 that has a kind of hallowed uh, place in our culture. Um, but another deeply seated mythology is a story about crime, often a racist mythology that has hundreds of years of, doc of, of, of kind of representing black life is lawless. And that is also a very powerful mythology to draw on. And that what we saw in the 60s very often was that there were kind of these two scripts that often were in which media sort of fell into one of those two scripts. And so part of what was powerful about the civil rights, the, the, the sort of the nonviolent tactics was that they could mobilize this narrative of, or this rights frame in the media. Um, but when it was a little bit muddier, um, you know, if uh, like in one incident in Albany, Georgia, the, there's a peaceful protest, but the, 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 the police chief is very strategic there, doesn't engage in spectacles of violence. Uh, protesters, um, just to fast forward, end up agitated, throw bottles and rocks at cops, and that becomes the lead story, right? The crime story very quickly uh, comes to the fore, even if it's a small number of people and a large number of peaceful protesters. Um, that uh, was the, you know, the story about African, you know, 2,000 angry Negroes throwing rocks and bottles at cops was the lead story in the New York, front page of the New York Times, right? So those two kinds of narratives, I think, still are at play today very much in the media. And now to come to your question about, well, what, what happens in polarized media or what happens in Julia's case question about, you know, how do we define these boundaries? Um, I think, you know, it, it's, it's, I think one thing that gives me some 
uh, optimism about the media today is I, I observe it in general being more sophisticated. So in the kind of mainstream media, I, I, you know, I've now listened to at least two segments where Ari Shapiro on NPR is interviewing uh, prominent representatives of the police, police union, police chief of New York, and is asking really hard questions. And traditionally, those kinds of interviews might have been much more police centric and sort of deferring to authority. Um, and so I suspect that some of what we're seeing in kind of public opinion is reflected in a more sophisticated media, but you're right, the media is fragmented and certainly some people are getting a Blue Lives Matter feed and other people are getting a Black Lives Matter feed. Um, and I think the, the, the main thing I look to there is just kind of the broad trends in public opinion, where what we've seen, particularly among white liberals, is much greater awareness and concern for issues of racial equality. And so even if Fox News or um, some other right of center media is emphasizing the kind of the crime script. Um, it's not clear that that is what is the kind of predominant narrative. Um, and even on things like CNN, when there was uh, lots of violence, or you know, there was a there was an incident where I was watching uh, Chris Cuomo on CNN um, when there was more un violent unrest, and he's making a point of saying, "Hey, like these people vandalizing this uh, coffee shop." You know, some of them might have a grievance, some of them might be just thrill seekers, some of them might be from different, you know, uh, kinds of movements that aren't particularly aligned with black interests, and just complicating the story. So, you know, he says, look, this is a multiracial group, and that kind of attention to detail um, reflects a kind of muddying, you know, it's not, it's not just falling into the crime script. And so, um, so I think we're seeing some evidence of a smarter media and potentially a more sophisticated viewing public, even as these cases are in some cases harder, you know, if a thousand people protest and 10 uh, light up a car on fire, is that violent or nonviolent? Well, it's overwhelmingly nonviolent, but, but there is clearly some uh, uh, property damage and that, you know, and, and one other detail, um, I used to work in local news and there's just a, you know, we, we often people focus on liberal bias or conservative bias, but, but for television, there is a visual bias, right? So a car on fire is an exceedingly compelling thing to show. And that will tend to predominate, even if it's in the context of a large peaceful protest, um, be something that gets disproportionate attention because, you know, a peaceful protest is like a plane landing. It's not particularly dramatic. Um, a car on fire is like a plane crash, right? That, that makes for good television. And that's, that's some of the challenge of how these things get represented. Uh, but um, I, I think that the subtleties people want to draw between damage to people, you know, injury or death and damage to property are kind of important, are really important points of discussion. But for the average voter, not, uh, I think, I don't see a lot of evidence that people are parsing a police station going up in flames is property damage. Um, and therefore, I don't need to worry about you know, what that means for my concerns about order. Um, that there are a non-trivial number of voters who are, are, are adjudicating between rights claims and order claims and disorder of any sort is unsettling for them. James, that's fascinating. And in, in your papers, it really got me thinking. And, and earlier, Omar, you mentioned the uh, persuasive power or coercive power. In, in thinking through and listening to the exchange just now with Julia and Lee, 
one of the things that jumped out at me is that we all see the world from a unique perspective. And to get a sense of reality in the round, you have to interact with others and in a political sphere. You have to reveal yourself through action, through words and deeds. And violence in many ways is mute, right? It doesn't it doesn't reveal. And so if you're a status quo like Bull Connor, violence, you know, if you can get the other people to to be violent, then that works for you versus a nonviolent uh, confrontation where you use violence. All of a sudden it invites uh, people into that moment and it helps them to see the perspectives of the protesters. Um, I, I, that's it's that's something that's very interesting to me. But real. I want to ask you a question about this distinction between political and violent uh, tactics. And if we think in terms of tactics to achieve a goal, right? So you have nonviolent tactics versus violent tactics to resolve disagreements in a way that's more favorable to your goals. And my question is, are they equally effective in all situations? And going back to the 1960s, if you think about Dr. King's nonviolent tactics, they work very, very well, as you document very, very well um, in in protesting uh, legal and institutional institutionalized segregation in the Jim Crow South. But Dr. King and his nonviolent tactics were much less successful when he tried to take his movement north, right? When he started to protest housing, not legal and institutional segregation per se, although there's certainly local ordinances and laws, but more of a social discrimination and segregation. And if you think about the Civil Rights Act of the 19, of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which incidentally followed like by days um, the, the protest in Selma, um, housing equality, his efforts in Chicago were much less successful. And you see it the, prior to his uh, assassination, you see in when his book that came out after that, uh, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? It's Dr. King is it's a very mournful um, view here because he's he's confronting the limits of of a tactic. Um, I don't I'm not sure he would put it that way. But do you think that nonviolent tactics could work in changing the way people think and behave in society versus changing the laws and the institutions in society? Does that make sense? Like, I'm just trying to understand. It, it does make sense. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe answer a slightly different version of it. But I think what, what I hear you saying is that there are, you know, what are the scope conditions on nonviolent tactics? In other words, what, what, what are the limits on where it might work and where it might Right. Not? And then and one other, just and then for people today who are very justifiably upset and concerned and frustrated and outraged by um, various um, systemic, but maybe not necessarily legal uh, discrimination and racism and segregation and all other types of things. How do you then deal with that in a in a very in a successful way? What can you do if violence ultimately isn't going to be as successful, but nonviolent tactics may not work as well? Two really important points, and I think one that I um, sometimes as an academic don't underline enough, right? That like a central part of why people protest is to express themselves. They are angry, they are mourning a death, they are grieving a man's killing. Uh, there's a level, you know, there's, there's a degree to which, particularly in the early days of the Minneapolis uh, protests, it, it was sort of part funeral, part protest, right? And that, that the, the level of grief that is manifested that turns into rage is um, an, an important thing to, keep in mind as a kind of core touchstone of what's motivating people and that that desire to express yourself or to to mourn may not tie immediately to some political outcome you know defunding the police or whatever it is um, 
and that 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 needs to be seen as also like a vital part of uh, that kind of you know uh, you know freedom of expression is, is is not just about the political ends but about actually uh, you know sort of being able to 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 articulate this kind of um, uh, all-consuming grief or rage um, but 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 the other part of what I hear you asking is is how do we think about um, you know kind of where might nonviolence be more effective and less effective both by kind of issue and by region and I think this does speak to a really important both power of this protest movement now but also a limit on the tactic um, and what I mean by that is if the target of your uh, reform is the police and the police are engaging in the contemporary moment but also in the past in widespread police violence um, indiscriminate excess force then you have this sort of marvelous sort of encapsulation of the issue, right? I, we are protesting excess police force. Here on video are the police pushing a 75-year-old man over and then walking past him as he bleeds from his ear, right? So, so you don't need to do much more than that to kind of represent the problem. Um, if your issue is something like school reform, you know, and maybe there's like a bureaucracy that's unresponsive, but there's no like agent that you can get on video doing something dramatic, it becomes a lot harder to use this tactic of uh, dramatizing injustice. Um, and, and I think it requires then a different kind of uh, set of, it, nonviolence can still work, but you know, for example, ACT UP at one point put a giant condom over Jesse Helms's home, right? So this was, they were fighting for uh, more funding for research and recognition uh, for people with AIDS and the condom over uh, Jesse Helms's home was a way of having in a kind of humorous way, but nevertheless dramatic, uh, a, a way of showing here's this, uh, you know, kind of virulently anti-gay senator who's blocking progress and let's, let's shame him publicly. Um, so there are other means of getting media and trying to kind of frame the story in a way that works for, you know, getting sympathetic coverage for your cause, but it's not as obvious as, hey, let's get beat up by the police because getting beat up by the police shows the world that there is this, you know, this fundamental injustice at play. And so that I think is a, a kind of a core problem. There are other ways people can generate media, celebrities, um, you know, things like fasting, um, which is to say hunger strikes. And, 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 and I think those offer different kinds of strengths and weaknesses. Celebrities get media, but may pull attention away from the cause. Um, but, but, but things like a hunger strike can be very powerful, even though they're not especially visual, because they say, I am willing to suffer in this profound way on behalf of a cause. And so to speak in kind of wonky political science speak, it's a very strong signal of how seriously you want the world to take your issue. Um, and that kind of, I'm going to inflict violence on myself can also work um, on, a, on, a wide, on a wide range of causes. So, so I think the kind of the broad theory is, is you know, the, the evidence I have is very much about violence and nonviolence, but I think the theory generalizes to how do you generate a kind of sympathetic story in the media? How do you convey um, a, a level of commitment to your cause? And not every cause is about police violence. And so that imposes real challenges when you're talking about something like, you know, in institutional issues of uh, housing inequality, particularly where there isn't a clear bad guy, right? Even the ACT UP example, Jesse Helms is the bad guy. And so the way I think about this, just to wrap, is that at root, there's an act of storytelling in every protest. And the protest leaders, organizers, you know, kind of people kind of staging that event 
really have to think about how is this going to produce a narrative in which our cause is elevated and sympathetically portrayed and our opposition is, you know, is, is in some ways in a simple story, the bad guy, and all of that can be encapsulated in something that's relatively simple. And that's exceedingly hard for a lot of issues. Julia, you want to ask another question? I do. I'm going to ask a kind of really big speculative question about the, the nature of protesting. And I don't, so I want to preface this by saying that I don't mean to infuse it with any kind of normative notion that protesting is is bad, but we do know that it's it's time consuming. You know, one thing that I have heard from different folks talking about the this most recent round of protests is kind of that, you know, they've been doing a lot of this. And I've heard this particularly from, you know, from people who are black, that they've been doing a lot of this. They're they're very tired. They're happy to see other people do it. And I don't want to suggest that's a representative opinion, but it's kind of like this takes a lot out of you. Right. It distracts people, particularly marginalized people from other concerns in their lives. Um, and it does suggest, as you're saying, an expression of grief or anger. So I'm wondering, is is protest politics this inevitable, natural um, kind of outgrowth of of politics and of you know the the ways in which democratic politics will always fall short, or is there a way we could design democratic politics to be more responsive that would that would reduce this the need for acting outside the system and engaging in these ways that do take a lot of time and emotional labor from people, particularly people um, who who are marginalized in some way. It, it's a great question, and it sort of it ties back to uh, a little bit of what Lee was asking at the beginning around kind of normal and exceptional politics. And I think it's you know and 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 which what should, what should we think of as normal or extraordinary? And so one of the ways in which the paper is set up to be more in conversation with traditional political science is that there's all this evidence in American political science that elites dominate politics. And uh, to your question, Julia, one, you know, primary reform we might think about that, that would sort of uh, make protests less essential would be to think about what gives us a more responsive politics, what makes our uh, political system less elite dominated. The way I describe Kind of protests in the uh, in, in in as a in the context of that elite domination is that we have a punctuated pluralism, right? Whereby pluralism, I mean, there there is room for kind of a multiplicity of voices to be heard, but it's episodic, right? It's it, you get this moment, the punctuated moment of these outside voices get to punch through and be heard, but it tends to be fleeting. And so you, you have an, a window of opportunity for some kind of reform in that moment. And then the old kind of elites dominate equilibrium reestablishes itself. And so I think what I hear both of you saying, and these are really good questions, is, you know, what would a different, more responsive politics look like? Obviously, um, you know, this is, this is work, your work uh, uh, on, on these topics is, is more developed than mine, right? We could have um, more members of Congress. Uh, we could have... Um, uh, different kinds of voting rules that were, uh, you know, empowered statistical minorities. Like it, it's uh, a system in which 51% rule and 49% are without voice is not a, a, a responsive system for, you know, almost half the population. Um, and that's especially true if you're 25% of the population and you never are able to you know, have a winning majority. Um, and so I, I, I think there are fundamental structural changes that might make the system more responsive, make our government more responsive. 
and, and, and do that in a kind of ongoing way so that one doesn't have to then take on this additional labor of taking to the streets. Um, and at the same time, I think part of what's interesting about this moment, when I uh, was on the job market now um, eight years ago, nine years ago, um, I got a question, uh, you know, what do protests in the 60s tell us about politics today? And there was a sense of maybe the story I was telling was an interesting story that had no particular relevance to the current moment. Of course, that would not be a question anyone would ask now. And, and I think it's probable that the kinds of things we've seen around the world, right, Arab Spring, but you know, also Black Lives Matter, um, or, or uh, you know, the Tea Party, maybe, um, that, that basically cell phones, that the internet and kind of communications technology broadly have just lowered the coordination costs for mobilizing. And that means I think we should expect, even if we had more responsive politics, and there's, you know, there's no evidence we're on our way to that. Um, but even if that were to happen, I think the, the kind of capacity for people to mobilize quickly on Facebook over texting and go out and kind of be seen and heard is uh, is only going to increase. And that means that I think that we, we, we should expect that protest politics become more routine and that that um, even even with the cost is uh, something that is is sort of uh, a more regular part of our politics going forward. Great. Why, why don't we take this to, to conclusions now? And I think at this point, we'll each kind of say what we've what we've learned from this conversation and, and how this, you know, is shaping our thinking going forward and what, what we want to take away. Um, and, you know, in in having this conversation, I, I think about my my own career that I've worked in government, I've worked in media and I've worked in advocacy uh, at various times. And, and in each position that I was in, I always felt like the other two groups had all the power. When I was in, when I was a journalist, which was my, my first job, I felt like I could only cover the things that either politicians were doing or advocacy groups were doing. And so I was somewhat limited. In, I had a, I could only cover what was actually happening. Then when I worked in advocacy, I felt like, well, I, I I can't get the message out unless we get the press to cover it, unless we get, and I'm not going to make any change unless politicians start paying attention. And then when I worked in government, I felt like, well, you know, we need to get support for the policies that we're trying to pass. Uh, and the only way we do that is by activating advocacy groups and, uh, and, and the media to, to, to cover these issues and, and raise them. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it feels like everybody in the system feels like somebody else has power. And one of the things that I really uh, liked ab about the, this paper is the way in which you connect all all three actors into to one sort of meta theory of political change in which you know, the focus of attention and, and image uh, you know, it, it seems to be the thing that really links them all together. And I hadn't really thought as much about just the emotional power uh, of, of, of the visual image as having such an important role in our politics. But this conversation has really helped to convince me that, that it, it really does. And, and that's a, a very different way to think about politics and political responsiveness. And I think the, a, a more... Uh, you know, traditional uh, political science view would would 
kind of lead us to. James, you want to offer some final thoughts? Yes. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Omar, thank you for, for coming on this sh uh, show. Uh, I really enjoyed your article, uh, your excellent article, and I really want to encourage all of our listeners to, to, to check it out and to read it. Um, but the article and, and the conversation today have really got me thinking about the distinction between political nonviolent conflict and, and violent conflict. And it's helped me to appreciate, I think, more fully how ineffective violence is as a tactic for political change uh, more generally. And if you think about it for regimes encountering nonviolent protests and people like Bull Connor, it's ineffective. Or if you think about it as, uh, as well from the protesters' perspective, confronting those regimes when regime officials act very differently and, and don't embrace violence, um, violence is very ineffective. And it really brings me, you know, I was thinking about this and I've just looked it up, but the Bobby Kennedy's speech when in Indianapolis on April 4th, 1968, and he's giving a speech and he announces Dr. King's death when he was assassinated, when he was shot and killed in Memphis um, that evening. And one of the lines that jumped out at me as I was listening uh, to this conversation, I, and I just wanted to quote here, I think speaks very well to the effectiveness of nonviolent political conflict versus violent conflict. And, and Bobby Kennedy says, quote, we can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization, uh, black people amongst blacks and whites amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort as Martin Luther King did to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. And I really think that encapsulates the current moment we're in because ultimately, if our goal is to communicate across our differences and to learn to live together, to think together, to, um, to be Americans together, ultimately violence cannot achieve that goal. And, the, and, and I think this paper is very effective in demonstrating in a very empirical way how effective nonviolence can be. And the challenge is for people who have very real and very understandable and identifiable grievances who are frustrated to embrace the nonviolent approach and to struggle and figure out ways to do so in an effective manner. And that's a very real struggle that people deal with. And and I don't know the answer to that, um, but I think that this paper and this conversation have really gotten me to, to think about this distinction in clearer terms and uh, I hope encourage us all to look for that answer. Julia? Yeah, so before I, I hand it to Omar for the last word, um, just I want to make two pretty quick points. And one is that I think that the way that we talk about violence in is really, you know, this paper actually gives us some more nuanced ways to think about that, which is that it matters in practice who is who is perpetrating the violence. And what a big part of this paper is not so much, I think, about using it to tell people who don't have a lot of power what to do. And you obviously, Omar, can correct me if I'm interpreting your paper wrong. But I, I don't view political science research so much as, as instructing people on proper tactics as helping us understand the dynamics of how things apply in different kinds of, of situations. And there's a big difference that I take from this in terms of people who have less power trying to build out coalitions versus the perpetual role that violence has played in in the state, right? And in, in specifically in enforcing these unequal conditions. So I think that it also behooves us to have a more broad and nuanced 
um, look at violence and look at the implications for who is using that violence. Um, the second thing is a more narrow point, but I think really one that has, has shaken me, um, which is this notion, you know, I asked about the fragmented media drawing on the narrative that I feel like I hear all the time about how American media is now very fragmented. And, and Omar reminds me that, of course, there were there were divisions in mid 20th century media also, and they were different kinds of divisions, but they were still there. And so I, I need to really think more about that. And also I think scholars who are, you know, who use media as data, you know, more of us need to think about what the black press was doing at that time and, and other points. Um, so, you know, I'll be thinking very specifically about that as I move forward as some of my own work. So thank you for that. Omar, you want to take us home? Thank you so much for having me in this very rich discussion. There are uh, a couple of things I take away. I think I, I'm working on a book project coming out of this. And so, um, you know, it, 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 there's sort of for me, just I, I want to be able to sort of think more about um, the question about scope conditions, which is to say, when might nonviolence be a, a more effective or a less effective tactic? Um, and I think that's a really important question to speak to. Um, I think the echoing what Julia just said, it's 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 very important to think about the, the kind of the constant level of state violence that people in marginal communities experience. And sometimes that's violence of of commission, right? The 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 the, the officer who hits you with the baton, but sometimes it's a kind of violence of omission that in the case of people with AIDS, they were, uh, you know, desperate, you know, it, it, it was another pandemic. And when that 100,000 death milestone was hit, um, it was a small news item in the New York Times. It was not the banner headline across the front page. And so the kind of inattention and um, inaction can also result in, uh, you know, very significant death. And I'm not trying to say the, the definitions of violence should be expanded to include all of those things, but we should think about the role of the state in contributing to profound inequality, often rooted in uh, in that kind of repressive capacity that, that that Julia just referenced, and that has to always be a kind of constant uh, touchstone. Why are people so angry? They're angry in part because they are being persecuted, um, and um, and then to come uh, to uh, just to to to, uh, to, but to Lee's point about kind of the power of the image, I I think. Um, one way I've been thinking about how nonviolence and violence work is that in some ways what one is trying to do with a protest is at least in the kind of more tact in, in the more uh, um, you know outcomes focused version not necessarily the expressive version is to get some topic into a national conversation and that if you can get that topic into the national conversation if it becomes the most important problem in America as we saw in the 60s after certain um, uh, nonviolent protests and violent protests, um, that, that, that that can be a very powerful way of getting kind of policy change you want. But, but the challenge is that you, 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 you know, what, what you get into the national conversation depends a lot on kind of what's happening on the ground. And that one way I think about how violent tactics can be, um, can complicate protest strategies is that they sometimes change the conversation away from an underlying injustice and 
I, I've seen this in my own discussions, and of course my own work talks about this, so I'm sympathetic to the question, but, but I was on a radio show and like three of the questions were about tactics, and it's like, no, 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 the, the thing we want to be talking about is an underlying injustice, right? George Floyd was killed callously before our eyes. This has been happening for decades, and that's, that's the beating heart of this. How do we focus national attention on an underlying injustice? And, and in some ways, the power of nonviolent tactics is they can elevate that injustice without changing the conversation in any way, right? The, 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 the national conversation focuses on that injustice, and that's part of why it's such a powerful mode of resistance for uh, historically marginalized groups. Well, great. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you so much. This has been Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.